Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Psycho Podcast, where we unravel all things human sexuality and challenge the misconceptions and stigmas surrounding different topics of psychology. I'm your host, Margot Underwood, so let's jump into it. Hi, and welcome back to another episode with the Psycho Podcast. Today, we are once again joined by Christopher DeFranco, a clinical mental health professional who specializes in LGBTQIA communities. Last episode with Chris, we talked about suicidality and personality disorders, but this time we're going to address all the ambiguities of the LGBTQIA spectrum, um, address some of the pronouns. We go into gender fluidity and gender expression, as well as how to navigate these interactions with the utmost respect and integration for everyone involved. So let's welcome Chris. Welcome again, Christopher, um, to part two of the Psycho Podcast and uh, LGBTQ edition. I had initially reached out to you because of your um, incredible work that you do with the LGBTQIA plus population. Um, and I wanted to bring to my listeners a little bit more of a normalizing conversation and educate them on the all of the nuances that fall under the LGBTQIA plus umbrella. So I guess that would start with defining what all of these terms mean. And I think it's, I think for most of my listeners, they know what LGBT stand for, but we can quickly run through those. But I would like you to go into more detail about the Q, the I, the A, and the plus. Sure. And thank you again for having me, Margot. It's always a pleasure. So um, in order to define this kind of LGBTQIA spectrum or umbrella, we have to kind of understand that it is something that is always changing. So even in the course of our education, we have seen it go from LGBT to LGBTQIA. And now there's this plus that encompasses a lot of other things. So most people understand what the L, G, B, and T encompass. Lesbian meaning a woman or a transgender woman whose primary sexual orientation is towards a person of the same gender, another woman. So someone whose gender, whether that's the gender they express or the gender that they are biologically born with, is toward a person of the same gender. Same thing goes with this idea of gay. It is often focused on the idea of men, but it has also been used as a general term for anyone that is attracted to someone of the same gender. So lesbian women can also be defined as gay if they choose. But um, historically, the um, 
word gay has been more uh, associated with men who are also attracted to men. Mm-hmm. Bisexuality is an individual whose primary sexual orientation and attraction is to people of the same gender or the opposite gender. And that's different from polyamory and non-binary and all of these other things that we'll talk about. So bisexuality is specifically attraction towards people who identify their gender as a man or a woman and that attraction to both of them. Mm -hmm. Transgender is most often used as this umbrella term for someone whose gender identity or expression does not fit with either the sex that they were assigned at birth or with the social construct of what gender means. So basically what that means is it is, there's a discrepancy between what they feel internally is their gender and what their either cultural expectation of their gender is based on how they look or the sex at a biological level that they were defined as based on their um, hormones and physical parts at birth. Um, transgender can also include people outside of this man, woman binary. So people who kind of just identify as having no gender or multiple genders as well. So that is the LGBT part. The Q part stands for queer, which is kind of a controversial term at times. Um, it used to be used defensively towards people who were homosexual but it has kind of recently been taken back by the community, the LGBTQIA community to kind of encompass anything under that umbrella. So a lot of people refer to it as a queer community now because it's a lot easier to say that I identify as queer, meaning I fall under somewhere under that umbrella rather than just I identify as a cisgender gay male. Right. So queer is a more of an umbrella term um, that's used to describe a lot of these things. The I stands for intersex and intersex is when someone is born, they either have different primary or secondary sex characteristics that don't fit neatly into what society has defined to be as male or female. So that could be they have a primary sex characteristic, like um, they may have a penis, but also may have a uterus. So that would be something that doesn't fall under that traditional definition of biologically male or biologically female. It can also be on the chromosomal level. Someone may have XY chromosomes, but also may have a uterus. And so they would be defined as intersex. But we don't, we don't really, nobody really, I guess, how do I want to word this? Nobody kind of considers themselves intersex. It is more kind of just this idea of at a biological level, there is um, a discrepancy between very clear male and female parts. Yeah. Biological and chromosomal. Biological yeah, and chromosomal. Exactly. 
I mean, most people didn't, you know, most people don't even know that that's happening in this world. And oftentimes this was referred to as someone who would be considered or born as a hermaphrodite, but we don't use that term anymore um, because it doesn't encompass all of those things. It doesn't encompass the chromosomal differences. It doesn't encompass this idea that someone may have been born with um, biological parts that the doctors may have chosen at that time to form into a, what they think that person's sex should be. So oftentimes there have been situations where someone has developed um, a, both a penis and has components of the uterus and all those other things like we talked about, but they may, a doctor may at birth choose what that person's sex should be and then may medically influence that outcome. And so intersex kind of encompasses all of that stuff because we're trying to get away from that. We're trying to get away from this idea of sex being defined as just what chromosomally and biologically a doctor sees at birth because there's so much more that goes into it. So if I heard you correctly, I mean, and I'm, I'm sure this has happened amongst many other procedures that are controversial. Um, a doctor has performed surgery on babies Mm -hmm. that they deemed, um, born incorrectly. So what will often happen is if there is this kind of intersex presentation Mm -hmm. at birth, meaning there is biologically a presentation of both parts or chromosomally, there is an influence of both parts. The doctors will, the term is actually mutilate the infant in order to neatly fit into what society's definition (gasps) of male or female should look like. That's horrifying. Yeah. And so that's why there's a lot of conversation about it. And that's why these new ideas of like, what is gender and what is gender identity? And how is that different from sex? And how do we actually help someone understand who they are at from their own perspective and their own authentic self, regardless of what is presented physically and chromosomally at birth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's, um, that goes into the, just the idea of normalizing, um, sexuality as, as, a as a personal preference. It's not something that should fit into a construct. It's, and that's that that's society's way of telling you that they know who you are and these are your rights and x y and z um that's heartbreaking and you also said like define sexuality and i'm not negating anything that you said but it's not just sexuality and sexual orientation it's gender and there's a difference between the two gender mm-hmm. is how society has defined these presentations of people male Mm. and female are genders that are social constructs 
sex is based on the biological factors at birth. And then sexuality encompasses this idea of attraction and orientation and all of those Mm -hmm. things that deal with um, sex, essentially all the things that encompass who you're attracted to and all of that stuff. Okay. From my personal, you know, experiences and understanding, I, I view gender as a piece of our sexuality. Is that, um, am I like viewing that correctly? I think so. I mean, I think that there's, there's an influence and an overlap with all of these, which is why a lot of this stuff has umbrella terms now. So, um, and we can talk more about that as we get into the plus idea of the LGBTQIA plus, but something like the term non-binary that encompasses a gender identity that embraces the full expression of how an individual wants to present themselves as. So Mm -hmm. non-binary means that someone doesn't fit into these binary of male or female. And that can also influence, like you said, the decisions that they make in regards to their sexuality. Mm -hmm. Um, Someone who is pansexual has romantic or sexual interests in people of all genders and sexes. So whether someone is non-binary and embraces all of these kind of forms of gender, whether they are gender non-conforming, meaning they don't want to conform to any of them rather than kind of all of them, whether they are transgender, whether they are male, female, all that stuff. Someone who is pansexual is attracted to any person for any reason. Anyone. Yeah. Yeah. From, I guess when I was first exploring what expression and identification I wanted to, um, identify with, I had looked at pansexual because it was something that was classified as just being attracted to someone's soul basically, Mm -hmm. and not really, um, viewing them as a, you know, a person with a uterus or a person with a penis or whatever else type of physical characteristics they might have. It was just how that person, um, conducted themselves. And makes you Um, feel, makes you feel emotionally, makes you feel sexually, all of those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's circle back to what the A means. So the A would be the probably the most important part of this for listeners who don't feel like they identify with any of those labels under that kind of queer umbrella. So A stands for ally, meaning someone who confronts heterosexism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, heterosexual privilege that they may have. They are advocates for anyone that is in the queer community or falls under this LGBTQIA umbrella. Mm -hmm. Some people believe that it um, means androgynous, but androgynous is kind of one of those words that falls under that non-binary spectrum of not really being defined by a gender that you can kind of define yourself as 
male, as female, as male and female at times, mm-hmm. gender non-conforming. So androgynous is kind of that middle ground between those two established genders of male and female. So mm-hmm. ally is typically what most people agree is the A within that label. Yeah, depending on your environment, like where you're placing yourself at the time, um, it might just be second nature. You might actively um, decide a expression that you want to exhibit in that moment because it's what fits your comfort in that moment. And I I feel like I can resonate with the non-binary and androgynous um, type of label because I have definitely developed certain masculine um, characteristics more often or more in certain circumstances and then more feminist attributes in other circumstances, just depending on who I'm interacting with, really. Yeah. And so there's also this idea of gender fluidity. And so that's how it gets so confusing is because there are a lot of these words that fall under different umbrellas. And so something like non-binary is encompassing because it's any kind of gender expression. Mm. Someone who is gender fluid kind of bounces back and forth between a sociocultural definition of a male presentation and a female presentation. Androgynous is kind of somewhere in between. And then, um, yeah, non-binary is whatever you want it to mean, however you want to present yourself. Right. Yeah. Being someone who isn't, I get, I get overwhelmed when, uh, people ask me what I am. I hate it Mm -hmm. when people ask me, you know, what are you? Are you poly? Um, you know, are you, you know, female? Are you gay? I'm like, (sighs) like, why do I have to tell you? Because when I feel like when I tell them, then they can be like, oh, now I, now I know who you are. They feel like then that you fit into that definition that they can quickly Google and see. And that's not really the case. I feel like I personally appreciate the term queer because it lets you tell someone that you are part of this community that is very fluid and changing and that you're not defined by any kind of gender or sexual orientation or anything like that. But I feel like the labels are also important more so on an individual basis. Like when I worked in the high school, there are a lot of teenagers struggling with their sexuality and trying to understand what their sexual orientation was. And so being able to have all of these different labels that they can kind of do research on and see, Mm. this is where I'm at right now. Like, I don't think I'm gender fluid. Like, I don't think I bounce back and forth between the two, but I also don't feel like I fit in the middle. So I'm going to identify as non-binary and that makes me feel like it's okay to be me and present myself in whatever way that I want. Mm -hmm. So there are so many labels in order to help people, I think, gain a little bit more clarity into who they are themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think the labels are less about what other people need to know, you know? Right. Absolutely. That's a huge, that was a huge um, point that I wanted to get to was kind of why all of these labels have come to fruition. Um, 
and you just set it right there so that people can step into society with a more, um, a, a better understanding of who they are, um, and display more confidence and, in, in any social situation. Um, all right. And then briefly we can go over the plus. So the plus includes those things like asexuality, where someone is, does not really have a sexual attraction or a desire to engage in sex. It's not necessarily the idea of celibacy where someone is choosing not to have sex, but still has sexual attraction to people. It is just kind of a lack of sexual attraction or desire to engage. Um, we talked about pansexual, which is this idea of people who have um, sexual attraction or romantic desire for people of all genders and sexes. Um, we talked about non-binary, this kind of encompassing phrase for anything um, that challenges the idea of gender, um, whether it's male, female, um, androgyny gender non-conforming, all of those things. And then mm -hmm. something called two-spirit also falls into this plus category. And this is a term that um, is very prevalent in the Native American culture and in indigenous cultures, which is used to describe people who fulfill a, a third gender role in the culture. So essentially, because of a lot of ceremonial aspects of things, when people who we would describe today as more non-binary or androgynous in the Native American or indigenous cultures, they define this person as two-spirit, meaning that they encompass a third gender that connects them closer to some sort of belief system, some sort of higher power. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I like that. And I um, have like Native American um, blood, I guess you would say. Like that's part of my um, ethnicity. Um, and so that's something that I've been wanting to do a lot more research on because in some ways people think it fits into this idea of intersex where they are born with a discrepancy between what their biological sex is and what their cultural gender would be. But it's a little bit deeper than that because it's not just based on what is presented at birth. It's this idea of how this person has developed within the culture and how they fulfill this idea of a third gender and it's well respected so it's very interesting no it is really cool i briefly did some research on it um but i got confused because i thought two spirit meant two basically identifying with two genders but you're saying that it's this third gender that they have manifested in their own culture and i think that that's really unique and really i think really special and should be recognized. And it can mean this idea of both genders or like going back and forth, kind of like we talked about gender fluidity, but it's, they conceptualize it as a third gender. So there's, again, this it's really cool. spectrum of things with all of these um, 
terms, diagnoses. We talked about the DSM in an earlier episode. Everything is on a spectrum nowadays. So it's important Mm -hmm. to kind of be inclusive and not just try to pit someone into one box versus another. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, um, how do we make sure that we're not misgendering someone like with our language um, on, you know, on a day-to-day basis? So specific to gender and gender is what our culture describes as male or female. It's a set of the legal status, a set of behavioral expectations, um, dress and um, physical presentation, all of those things fall under this idea of gender. So when gender is now becoming a little bit more ambiguous and people are kind of choosing not to fit into this label of male or female, or they find that their biological sex does not match their gender identity, um, we have to be respectful of the label that they choose to identify themselves as. And so it's important to, I think, look at this idea of gender moving forward as no longer defined as male or female, as Mm -hmm. just more on a personal level. So I guess when you ask how do we differentiate or how do we be respectful of someone who may not fit into these gender norms, the best way is to kind of use very neutral pronouns when um, interacting with people. So an example of that would be, let's say in an office setting, um, Kyle is having a performance review and his name is at the top of the And then it says, Kyle performed really well. He did this, this, and this. He was on time, whatever. A more appropriate way to word those things would be Kyle's performance was above average. They demonstrated good um, reasoning skills. They demonstrated strong effort, et cetera, et cetera. Um, or I also resort to, if you know the person's name, then use their name, you know, Mm -hmm. rather than trying to just associate a pronoun to something. So, um, I need, let's say someone's sending an email. I need Taylor to take this over to this office and I need Taylor to talk with this other person about this thing rather than I need her or him. Mm. that makes sense yeah absolutely um i like how you first mentioned that we kind of need to start by changing our um understanding of or at least get away from society's way of believing what gender is exactly um so that we can easily um, adjust to different types of language because we're not thinking that it is a binary anymore. We're thinking, okay, it's a spectrum and I can't just assume, um, I mean, you can, but people aren't going to respond well. I mean, if you're wanting the best response out of the person that you're talking to, you're going to want to be respectful. 
Um, and I think that's a great way to start. Yeah. And I think we see even in our current political climate, this polarization that happens when people try to define things as one category or one group against another group. You know, we just saw it a few days ago with Democrats versus Republicans. And um, I think when you try to put this idea of gender into two groups, you're creating a polarization, which then can lead to conflict and um, sexism and all of these other things that are unnecessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's not um, going to happen overnight either. Exactly. Uh, but it's a good, good time to just start thinking about it and doing some work to be just, I don't know. I just see it as just being a better human being. Exactly. Being a good person. <laughs> There's also um, some other pronouns, like just to talk about those really quickly, um, because uh, people will hear them a lot. Like they'll hear things like Z and Zim, which is mm-hmm. a, um, it's a gender neutral way of saying he or she or him or her. That's probably the most common is Z, Zim, Zer, Zis, and Z self. But those are so much less known. And there's even way more underneath that umbrella that I feel like the easiest way for any listener to just approach a person is to use gender neutral pronouns like they or them. It's very Mm -hmm. easy. And then also just call people by the name that they want to be called by. Hi, I'm Chris. What's your name? Right, right. Would it be... um acceptable um to ask someone you know hey what do you prefer to be um ident or what do you prefer to be called by I, that feels weird to it, say exactly <laughs> like it's hard to kind of even formulate that question which then makes yeah. it more awkward, or it actually can reinforce some of that dysphoria that that person may experience with their own gender identity. So one way of asking that if you know a person for a fact identifies outside of a traditional gender role of male or female, you can ask if they have specific pronouns that they Mm -hmm. prefer. That's a good way to put it. If you know that someone is transgender because they've talked about it. You can ask them, do you have specific pronouns that you prefer? Because Mm -hmm. someone who is transgender, so let's say a transgender female, someone who was born biologically, their sex was defined as a male and they transitioned to a female based on their gender identity. They may prefer to have female pronouns to reinforce that internal gender identity that they have they them may be a little triggering for them so if you know and have a relationship with someone you can ask if they have pronouns that they prefer but generally you're going to be pretty safe using they them okay that's that's a good point and thank you for sharing that because actually i saw something on twitter the other day and a woman told me that she was or not told me posted that she was in an office and the doctor came in and had asked 
um, if she had any specific pronouns that she preferred. And she saw it as a great step in the um, medical community because uh, that's not typically something that you would hear a doctor asking you yeah. as they're doing an evaluation or consultation. And I'm not trying to read you at all. I'm trying to use this as an opportunity to kind of reinforce what we talked about is even in that conversation, you immediately gravitated towards she because you knew from that um, article or whatever it was that this was someone who identified as a woman. And so you referred to her as she. But if we're practicing those gender neutral pronouns, it would be they walked into the office and the doctor asked them if they preferred any certain pronouns. No, absolutely. It's, it goes, it's a great example of how deeply rooted these, um, constructs are in our, I mean, we just talked about it. Mm -hmm. Um, it takes active, um, active learning and active, um, participation, um, to, to adjust our language. Uh, it's definitely something that I want to work on. I think we all have room to work on it. And I think we all can educate people without it being an attack or try or that person being defensive. Like when I was in school for psychology, um, a lot of people say autistic children or that person is schizophrenic. And one of my teachers would stop every single time someone said it and would say person's first language. That is a child with autism or that is a person mm -hmm. who struggles with schizophrenia. So there's always these opportunities to change the way we word things in order to be more inclusive towards a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So just always thinking gender neutral person first language is kind of a good rule of thumb. Person first language. I like that. Um, I also really like this concept that um, a lot of people are afraid to confront uh, pronouns because they're scared that they're just going to get it wrong and then they're going to offend someone. And I think it's a part of normalizing this is, is accepting the idea that we're going to make mistakes. And the important part is just to recognize your mistake and do better next time. Um, because we're all going to mess, mess it up. Absolutely. But that doesn't, you sh that doesn't mean that you should just remove yourself completely or uh, become they, defensive and kind of mm. give a reason why you made that mistake or anything. It should just be, I'm sorry. Thank you for educating me. Mm. I will refer to you with he, she, or he, him pronouns moving forward right. or they, them pronouns moving forward. Right. Yeah. It's important to note. I, I've definitely felt that kind of paralysis. Um, and that just kind of falls into lack of education and lack of confidence and maybe being scolded for whatever in my, in my past when I could just accept responsibility of my actions and move forward. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so how do people who have a gender identity that differs from their assigned sex or perceived gender 
navigate that dysphoria or incongruency? So good question. I mean, there's, so let's first talk about this idea of dysphoria, which is kind of a, um, uncomfortability and emotion, an intense emotional response between the discrepancy between how you view your internal gender identity and your external biological sex. So the way that people try to affirm that gender identity is they may go through things like social affirmation, which is changing their name and pronoun. They may, um, change the presentation of the way that they dress or cut their hair. Um, legal affirmation is changing legal documents to reflect what their gender identity is. Um, medical affirmation would be when someone either um, during puberty goes through puber pubertal suppression and gender affirming hormones. So if someone is young enough and they have a very clear demonstrated history of dysphoria and a very clear idea of what their gender identity is young enough, they can start on um, hormones that suppress the, what they're the, the dominant hormones and then allow other hormones to be implemented to kind of affirm the gender that matches their identity. So there's that hormonal um, process that occurs for a lot of people once they want to go through that medical process a little bit more. But the first step for people to kind of affirm their own gender identity is usually just in the way they present themselves, the name they choose, the pronouns they use, how they dress. Um, but once they start to feel more significant dysphoria, then they may start to explore things like hormone replacement therapy. Um, so for men who are transitioning to women or have a gender identity that matches a more female presentation, they will use hormones that suppress that testosterone and increase estrogen levels. And then it's the opposite for women who are identifying with a male gender identity, they will receive um, testosterone hormones. Mm -hmm. So that's the first step. And then the second step would be um, more of those surgical interventions. So there's mm -hmm. feminization surgeries, there's masculinization surgeries, and those are the types of steps that require more of an intervention from um, a mental health professional as well. Uh -huh. So when we talked earlier about like how I initially got into some of this work and the practice that I worked for, worked with the Cleveland Clinic um, in their pride clinic, we got all of the referrals for people who were identifying as transgender and wanted to go through more of a um, surgical affirming process to match their physical um, gender expression to their gender identity. So, um, you have to meet with a therapist and you have to actually understand what is all involved with those surgeries. You have to understand the depths of how your gender identity developed and how long you felt that way. Because like we talked about earlier, 
there's so many different ways of presenting one's gender nowadays. It doesn't mm-hmm. fall into a clear category. Someone who is not educated on all of that may immediately feel like, oh, I biologically look like a male, but I don't feel like a male. That means I should just start taking um, estrogen hormones and testosterone suppression and start looking into surgery. And so that's why it's really important for doctors to refer people for that counseling so that they can understand, is it just a presentation issue or is there significant physical dysphoria that needs to result in some sort of kind of affirming surgery? Mm-hmm. That That is really <clears throat> important to mention, I think, because a lot, I mean, there's a lot of laws, I think, that are kind of in a transitionary state where they're changing the age limit for 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 humans that want to start taking hormones at a younger age and i think it's important to note that these these individuals cannot start um having a physical uh a physical transition process like begin until uh, they go through extensive um, um, evaluations and try to understand like the act, like the root of where their dysphoria is coming from. Um, Yeah. That's a really, because obviously there's a lot of controversy around that um, with children taking hormones, uh, suppressants and hormone additives. And Um, for a lot of these children and adolescents like if they have a very clear identity of their gender and it is and it does not match their external sex or external gender presentation they there becomes this anxiety or this need to intervene before they start going through puberty in a way mm-hmm. that is not related to how they feel internally, because that can create more dysphoria for someone. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm working with a young male who identifies as female and has identified as female for most of his life, he may want to start hormones early, but because he's under the age of 18, he needs his parents' consent. And a lot of parents are hesitant to that because they want to make sure that this child is informed is making the right decision knows who they are but for that child it is even more dysphoric and more anxiety inducing to go through puberty and experience all of that male those male dominated traits when they haven't ever felt that way so I think it is really important to look at it like we said from a person-centered approach and not just make these general laws or claims about when mm. something is appropriate or not appropriate to start. Right. Absolutely. It's a case by case basis. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy for people to just criticize um this type of transition because they're looking at what the law is saying rather than what the profession the the professionals in the mental health field are saying about it and what the person is saying like Mm -hmm. my job is not necessarily to formulate an opinion about someone's gender identity it's to listen to them and help them sort through so that they can 
um, Mm -hmm. finalize their understanding of their gender identity without any influence from me. I'm just a guide. Right. Yeah. A support Mm -hmm. and a resource. Um, so let's transition into, um, the idea of sexuality and sexual orientation and what those terms kind of encompass. So we touched on it a little bit earlier because we talked about biological sex as kind of being what is defined at birth um, based on these binaries that we no longer want to use, male versus female. Um, We talked about gender as being based on these cultural norms gender identity being based on how the individual person views their gender expression. And then sexuality is the way in which people experience themselves sexually. So it includes physical, emotional, social, spiritual feelings, all related to the types of people one is attracted towards sexually and the types of experiences they want to engage in sexual sexually so that is what kind of sexuality at its core Mm. involves um typically under that kind of framework there's this idea of sexual orientation which is kind of what type of person you are attracted to and we've also Mm -hmm. talked about that a little bit too Mm -hmm. that someone who is homosexual um is attracted to someone of the same sex. Someone who is heterosexual is attracted to someone of the opposite sex. So that's their sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a big study on this and people may have seen the movie. um, I think it was maybe Liam Neeson, but I could be completely wrong. And it was called Kinsey. And it was about um, Alfred Kinsey, who was considered the father of the sexual revolution. And what he did was he he explored sexuality from this perspective that people don't really fit neatly into this idea of exclusively homosexual, meaning that they don't identify as being attracted to the same sex and as exclusively heterosexual. So the opposite sex. So he conducted like 8,000 plus interviews during the course of his research, I think. And he used assessments on behavior and experience rather than on these socio-cultural labels. So just like we talked about earlier about trying to eliminate all of these labels because they don't actually give us an idea of who someone is internally and how they feel, he looked at their behaviors for sexual orientation and sexuality. So he created a scale and the scale has been changed over time. It's expanded, but generally it was a seven-point scale ranging from zero to seven, zero being exclusively heterosexual, meaning that the person has only had heterosexual experiences in their lives, only with opposite sex partners. They don't have any interest. They are not aroused by any other form of sexuality. A six would be exclusively homosexual. So someone who is only attracted to or has only had experiences with people of the same sex. And then there's kind of this spectrum in between. Um, That's what kind of this idea of sexual fluidity comes from, that some people kind of just float in between based on experiences in life. And 
Mm-hmm. A lot of bisexual people or pansexual people identify with that idea of sexual fluidity. Um, the seventh area on the scale was used, it was labeled X, but it was used to describe individuals who have had no sexual experiences or reactions. So it doesn't necessarily mean they're asexual in the sense that they um, have no attraction to anyone or that they don't um, want to engage in any kind of sexual activity. It's that they may not have had the opportunity yet or may not have really fully defined what that sexuality looks like for them. Mm. Um, And for our listeners, um, they can learn more about this if they look up what the Kinsey scale is. Yeah. Um, Or even watch the movie. Like it's, I mean, it's a Hollywood movie, but it, it clearly shows and defines kind of what this person's research process was like. So there's tons of resources to educate yourself on um, sexuality, gender, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And then this is, um, this is something that's kind of new, um, at least from what I can see on social media is people are putting their pronouns in their bios. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to go over this for our listeners and kind of explain why they are putting their pronouns, even if they are cisgender and they identify as a, as a she, they're still putting she and they're, they're presenting as well as a female. Um, like, because I'm sure people will see that and they'll be like, well, mm-hmm. obviously you're a woman. I'm obviously, you know, I should call you this, this, and this, but I think it goes a little bit deeper than that. And it goes, it relates to that idea of ally that we talked about that a mm-hmm. in the LGBTQIA plus umbrella in that in order to normalize these pronouns and awareness of the fact that there is a difference in how people present their gender identity. Um, people who identify as cisgender are putting, like you said, a uh, she, her pronoun, if they are a cisgender woman, to normalize the idea of presenting your pronoun or asking people what their preferred pronoun is and showing people that this is something that we are going to have to get comfortable mm-hmm. with, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's an awareness tool. It's an educational tool and it is primarily, um, been a response on the part of allies to not make people who don't have a typical gender identity feel like they are the only ones that have to define their pronouns because then you are kind of isolating that person into a box that, okay, if your gender identity is different than what is culturally or socially expected, then you have to educate us. You have to tell us that it's different. And allies are saying, no, we all should just normalize this and we should all just have pronouns visible. So people know how to refer to us regardless of what our name is or what they think our sex is biologically. Mm-hmm. And I think the last question or observation that I want to make here is this conversation that I was having with a friend of mine 
who was struggling with the idea that, uh, and we already mentioned this, but I would just want to reinforce it, that um, someone who is chromosomally and biologically, physically presents as a male or female, whoever, and then starts to make a physical transition, um, wants to identify as something different than how they were born with, um, he still felt or they still felt the need to um, to view them as a male or however they were born. Of course, he said, I, you know, I don't care. I'm accepting of any pronouns that they want to use, but I still stand firm on the belief that they're born a male and chromosomally they're a male. And then we started talking about, um, we started talking about, um, males who had transitioned into females and, um, professional sports. And that was kind of why, uh, he felt that way was because he didn't feel someone who had the development and the structure of a man could play sports, uh, um, against females. So if I'm understanding you correctly, this person felt that regardless of what someone's gender identity presentation was that if they were born a certain sex that their pronouns should match that sex and Mm -hmm. it's related more to this idea of sports and athletics yeah i think that was kind of where it was originating from but i what i wanted to bring it back to was that gender has gone beyond the biological and chromosomal Mm -hmm. characteristics uh and that we are actually changing the perspective. Yeah. And I think that if we're going to frame it within this idea of sports, like, I mean, to me, like, maybe this is controversial to say, but like, why do we have men's and women's sports to begin with? Mm -hmm. Like that creates a polarization and things and that reinforces gender norms and gender stereotypes. Like, Maybe there can be a men's basketball league and a women's basketball league, but can there not just be a inclusive basketball league? Like if Mm -hmm. we already have two, why can't we have three? And then we don't have to necessarily always focus on putting people into one category or another. So I think it brings up this bigger idea of how our culture views gender and how the activities that we do and even the way that we have documents that are filled out online or on paper, they don't reflect this idea of um, anything outside of that traditional gender binary. Mm -hmm. And so as it relates to sports, if that person is allowed to, because of league rules, participate in let's say a female basketball league, even though they were born biologically male, their pronouns are she, her, or they, them, and they are a female and they then are able to play in that league if that league chooses to allow that. Mm -hmm. But that just brings up a bigger debate about why are we choosing to Mm -hmm. allow these things or not? And what is, what is, what are the changes that we need to make and how do you make those without kind of creating a significant disruption 
that is going to receive a lot of backlash from a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So we have to find this kind of way of normalizing it and making things more inclusive in every aspect of our life. Yeah. That's a really good point to bring up. Um, well, I think that the last thing that we're going to touch on is just the resources, but I'm going to include all of those resources because there's a lot, um, that you gave me in the uh, description of this podcast. Um, but again, I just want to thank you for educating me and educating all of our listeners, um, on how to be one, a better human, more inclusive and, and, um, get away from these constructs that tell us who we are. Um, really grateful for all of your input. So thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And I mean, even for me, this is an educational experience because like I said before, it has changed from when I first started my internship at the LGBT center to now, and it's probably going to change moving forward in the next few years. So just having these conversations, even if we don't have a full understanding of it, but being willing to listen and educate ourselves and ask questions is the most important part. So thank mm -hmm. you for bringing attention to this and giving me the opportunity to talk with you about it. Of course. Yeah, this was really fun. I hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode of the Psycho Podcast with Christopher DeFranco. I hope to see you guys next time. And if you're curious about upcoming episodes, all of my social medias are listed on my website at thepsycho.com. Music is... Fallen for Autumn on Instagram, F-A-L-L-E-N-F-O-R-A-U-T-U-M-N. And the song is called Face In It. So go give her some love. Hope to see you guys next time. I